Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You're about to meet and get to know Crystal Berger, who has a list of credits a mile long. Briefly, she's a lifestyle host and feature contributor and author of The Extraordinary, Claiming a Life of Purpose, Passion, and Prosperity. Her work has been featured on the Fox News Channel, Dr. Oz Show, Trinity Broadcasting Network. She can be heard daily as a speaker, podcast host, and producer for Fox News in Manhattan. She's also Senior Booking Producer, Affiliates Coordinator for Fox News Radio. A member of the National Association of Black Journalists, Crystal's work has been featured in Black Enterprise Magazine. She is the recipient of the NAACP's Freedom Fighter Award, UN Social Media Ambassador, J.P. Morgan Chase, esteemed speaker. And she's also a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. She received a BA from the University of Maryland and also attended the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland. So we're going to meet and get to know Crystal Berger. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today from Baltimore. (laughs) Yes, Sandy, it is so wonderful to be on with you today. Thank you for having me. So Crystal, back in the day when you were going to college, Did you have a sense of what it is that you wanted to do where you are today? Is that where you wanted to be back in the day? (laughs) Back in the day. You know, it's funny, Sandy. As early as 15, I knew that I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like, but I actually um, used to watch this show that came on BET called Teen Summit, and it was hosted by a woman named Ananda Lewis. And I remember seeing her, and she was one of the first young, brown, black, skinny girls I saw on TV. And I was like, I want to do her job. And so I knew very early on that that's what I wanted, but I didn't really know how to get there, who Mm. I needed to talk to, what would be the next step because no one in my community was a journalist. So I I had no idea. Yeah, role models were missing, in other words, for you. Well, I had a lot of role models, but just not in that space. You know, I grew Mm -hmm. up in the rec centers. Uh, My mom, she spent a lot of time working. And so my brother and I, we we spent a lot of time with mentors and role models, but they were recreators. They were more in sports and community work. And no one really in the professional landscape that could say, you need to take this pathway to achieving your dreams. So though I had many, many mentors and many role models, they just weren't in the space where I wanted to, to grow my my professional career. So did you want to be a newscaster? I never thought newscaster. I always thought more like a lifestyle feature host, which I've actually been been honored to do. Sure. But, you know, the pathway to getting there, people think that you have to do news so you can perfect your craft. And so I started to pursue that. But the crazy thing was when I was in undergrad, they didn't have a broadcast journalism program at that time. And so I had to take the long route to getting to my dream, um, which I'm sure we'll get into. Well, that's interesting because back in the day, I knew that I wanted to be somebody out there. And at Mm. first I thought I wanted to be an actress, but I didn't have any of that talent. And I have to say that my career, just parenthetically, began in radio many, many years ago. And when I did get started, there weren't very many of me in radio, which was very helpful. Now, you know, you hear all those stories that if you're based in New York, whatever, you got to go to Iowa and cut your teeth, like in Des Moines or some godforsaken town in Utah or whatever. That fortunately didn't happen to me. I'm a tri-state person. And I was able to get my first job in a small radio station in Westchester County, a suburb of New York City. And then 
luck as well as, you know, I'm in the right place at the right time, I was able to transfer into Manhattan. And so it was mm-hmm. relatively painless for me in the sense that gender worked for me, that mm-hmm. there weren't a lot of women in radio. Now, I have to assume that that must have been the case for you, not only because you're female, but because you're African-American. Absolutely, Sandy. Once I finally made a decision to pursue it, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that I I hear a lot of parallels in our stories. You know, it's funny when you said you wanted to be an actress. So I always wanted to be a supermodel. Like I'm six feet tall. Um, Anybody who knows me when you see me in person, it's like, wow, you're really tall. And so I really wanted to model, but Mm -hmm. that was such an unpredictable profession, especially my mom. She's old school. And she was like, you're not doing that. Like you're going to go to college and there's no modeling. And I had a gentleman from Ebony Magazine when I was 13 years old. He stopped me on the street. And he was like, I would love for you to model. And my mom, she couldn't get off work to take me to the auditions. And so my older cousin took me to his office and it was a very reputable organization, but it was a thing of, we couldn't really balance how my mom could be a momager, right? Like that wasn't Uh, an option, mm -hmm, you know? And mm -hmm. so there was no one to go with me on to auditions and go sees. And so that was kind of like my childhood dream dream Mm -hmm. um, that I kind of put to the side. Fast forward to getting into journalism, I was, (laughs) and I guess my height kind of played to my advantage when you talk about like fate or destiny, I was taking a business planning and development class through the state of Maryland at the time. And I was in the class with a gentleman named Dave Zake, and he was starting an online magazine called Scene Baltimore. So he comes in class one day and he says, Crystal, oh my God, I need somebody tonight. I need an attractive woman to go interview some of the Baltimore Ravens. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, and I was, and that's what I said. I said, oh, my God, yes, I'm going, you know. I'm like, I'm young, and they're they're athletic and rich and handsome. I was like, of course <laughs> I'll do it. Why not, you know? And so I went, and my very first interview, Sandy, was with Ray Lewis, a Super Bowl MVP. And was, was this print, or was this... This is online. That actual digital interview got over 80,000 views on YouTube. And did you know what the <laughs> fuck you were doing? when I had no idea. It was a mess. It was horrible. Like you could watch it today, Sandy, and it is like, it, it is cringeworthy. Is, it, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but I looked good, right? I had like a fur yeah, I was just and like my say, hair. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know? And so, but what it was, you know, it just opened, it was the right place, right time. Like you said, that opened doors to the other Ravens asking me, hey, I'm having a charity event. Terrell Suggs had a sickle cell awareness event. Can you come and cover it? And so I was going around the city doing all of these interviews and it just turned into a career when one of my best friends, my childhood best friend, we went to middle school together. She came out to one of the events to party and I was hosting. And she says, B, she calls me B. She says, B, I don't know what it is that you've been doing, but this is what you need to do and you really need to pursue it. And in that moment, Sandy, I decided to enroll in the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland because I had been out of college for a few years and I took courses there. So I was taking this business planning and development class like in the morning, working on a business. Midday, I was going to the Broadcasting Institute of Maryland. And then at night, I was interning at WJZ, the same station where Oprah got her start. I was interning there at night in their sports department cutting tape. So that's how my story started. And then I I left Baltimore and went straight to New York. What year are we talking about? Because I'm curious what kind of reception you received based on being female. 
And oh, also was, being a woman of color. What what year was so, it? So, 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 Sandy, you're trying to date me now. You know, I'm trying to keep myself young in, in the eyes of the consumer. As now. far as I'm oh. concerned, I mean, I'm always the oldest of all my guests by decades. So I don't give a damn that you feel that way. <laughs> so this was, this was around um, 2010, Sandy. And in that process, I... There were, well, one thing is when I got to New York, I was the only African-American woman in my newsroom and I was the only African-American woman in my newsroom for the entire decade that I was there. Now, th- so, this is what station? This was Fox News this, Channel. This was so Fox. I went, okay. I, yes, I went straight mm-hmm. to network, straight to network news um, okay. as a production assistant. And the thing was, is like, I was extremely persistent. You know, I sent out hundreds of resumes. But one thing I was very strategic about was that I knew, like you kind of mentioned, I didn't want to go to a smaller market than Baltimore. And I knew that because I was kind of like a late start, like I didn't intern in college at a station that I didn't want to work my way up from like chasing storms in like Kansas, right? And so I only applied to top markets, New York, LA, Chicago. And it was like any station within those markets I applied, but I ended up landing at a network network, which was like beyond what I could have ever possibly imagined. So sometimes the events in our lives are bigger than we are. Mm. But I think that cliche does hold true of being at the right place at the right time. (laughs) Absolutely. And there is no doubt that things that are for you are for you. You know, that 15-year-old dream, right, that I saw on BET didn't manifest until over almost 10 years after that, right? And so it's one of those things where it's like, but it was for me and I I just didn't, and timing is critical because I do believe if I had ended up in New York in like my early 20s, I would have been like somewhere like, you know, strung out or something. I don't know. You know, I don't feel like I would have had the the the, the mental fortitude to see that dream through because or of the maturity. The, correct. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I do believe that right place, right time is critical and also being open to the right place and the right time because a lot of times we'll talk ourselves out of things that are meant for us. I remember being at BIM and one of my instructors saying to me, well, Crystal, what market do you want to go to? And I was like, New York, LA, or Chicago. And he's like, oh no, that's not possible. Like you're going to have to work your way up. And I was like, I'm absolutely not. And so I think you have to also be open to when the opportunities present themselves. Like I could have easily said, hey Dave, I can't go and interview any of these Ravens. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I just went and I did it. And so I think it's a combination of what's for you is for you, right place, right time, but also being open to really pursuing your purpose or your passion or that dream that you had as a child. Well, I think there's more to it than that, too. I think, again, and I've been a broken record about this with my guests, is this tie that binds of of a strong sense of self, whether Mm. you pick that up on your own, whether you got that at home, whether you got that at school, that that still gives me such pause that you're going to do what you want and need to do. Maybe the means to the end might take a little while and there might be detours, but you still have that drive and you're not and you're not discouraged because mm. the, the feedback has been incredibly positive. It doesn't sound to me that you had a tough road to hoe. I mean, I think it was a lot of fake it till you make it, you Uh, know, (laughs) you know, um, it's like me being at interviewing Ray Lewis. Like I looked like I knew what I was doing. So I had to fake it until I made it. I remember getting to the newsroom and the, the learning curve being so 
steep for me because I had never really worked in a newsroom. Like the only thing that I did was cut tape as an intern in a sports department in Baltimore, right? And so I went from a mid-market station to network news. So we were broadcasting everything around the world, right? Mm-hmm, and I remember mm-hmm. like, who knows who who the prime minister of, you know, <laughs> this country is, right? And so I remember going into work, Sandy, I would go in an hour and a half before my shift started. And I used to have to be in the newsroom at 4.30. I would go in an hour and a half early just so I could read in, so I could get a grasp just on the news cycle. And I, like, that was my entire first year, you know? And for me, I feel like people, I was raised with a lot of tenacity, you know, um, growing up in Baltimore, you know, coming from a single parent family. My mom worked 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. And so my brother and I were very independent, very young. My parents divorced when I was eight years old. And so uh, a lot of those life lessons, of we just got to make it work. I brought into those experiences as well in the newsroom. So what was that like for you being in front of the camera? Did you feel that you had met your match? I felt like I had so much more to do because like we mentioned earlier, you know, as a woman, as a Black woman, you know, it's like that double jeopardy of being like a double minority. And my aunties used to always say when I was little, your ice just has to be colder, meaning you don't have room to make a mistake. You don't Mm. have room to fumble because there's always someone else who people believe should be in your spot anyway. And you need to be overqualified. You need to be overly prepared. And so one thing I did while I was at the network before I even got on air, I would come in every Saturday on my own time for six hours and I would just read teleprompter. I literally would sit there for an, for six hours every Saturday for a year. And I did it consistently until I got a grasp of just how to navigate the actual newsroom landscape. And then I, I went to vocal coaching just to learn how to articulate my words properly and to kind of get rid of that Baltimore accent that I had, you know? Mm-hmm. And then also those cultural things. I think that's another piece of it, Sandy. It's like, you know, culturally, people of different races and ethnicities communicate differently, right? Which in a landscape that you're the minority, those things can be perceived in a lot of different ways that may not be acceptable for those platforms. And so I had to kind of, what do they call it? Uh, This duality of experiences where I had to learn how to assimilate to an environment that I necessarily didn't come from. And so those things as well added to the unique preparation for going on air. So it was a process, you know, it was a process. How did you feel about the many times that you were the only one like you? Mm. I never let it consume me. You know, my my brother said something to me very early on. So my brother is a classically trained tenor who studied under many, many well-known names, one Placido Domingo. And so he had a lot of worldly experiences that I didn't have very early on. Like he traveled the world as early as 16 singing classical music. And he was oh, always wow. the yeah, he was always the only one in the room. He was actually in a show called The Three Motenors. Like he you could find him online as well. And um my brother said to me, Don't go into that place feeling like you have to fight every fight. Just know that you just need to be who you are and do the work that you've been called to do and just be great at it. 
And that's something that I had to take into every single situation. So I never looked at my race as an inhibitor to my success. I did actually position it as a unique opportunity because I was the only Black woman in my room. I took advantage of every single diversity opportunity that was presented. If the corporation wanted to send me to a conference, if they wanted me to speak at an event, if they wanted me to participate in different activities, I did it knowing that it was going to be something to position the next steps in my journey and my career. And so... Now, did it feel lonely? Absolutely. Was it isolating? For sure. I mean, there were times when I think people, and some bias is unconscious and some of it is conscious, right? Um, I remember days when I would call my mom and be like, nobody will even ask me to go get coffee. And I don't know if that was racism. I don't know if that was bias. I don't know if that was fear. And it took a long time for a lot of my colleagues to interact with me because I think they just had never interacted with a Black woman before. So you're talking about acknowledging. It's not the act of getting coffee so much. You were just, you were you invisible to them? Is that what you mean? Oh, no. I mean, there's no way I'm invisible. You know, I'm six feet tall and I'm definitely right. vibrant. You know, <laughs> So I wasn't invisible. I just think that it was a cultural thing Thing where people are afraid of the unknown, right? Some people. Now, some people are just biased, right? Some people are just racist. Like, that's just what it is, right? And that's their thing or they're prejudiced or they're stereotypical. But then there are other people who are looking at you and they're like, well, I want to have a conversation, but what do I say to Crystal? You know, well, do we have shared common experiences? And so over time, of course, people got to know me just from my presence in the room. But I'm talking about those initial days in the newsroom where it was like, Clearly, I was the only Black woman in the room, so I couldn't be invisible anyway, right? Sure. But more importantly, I think it was people navigating their own internal thing of what they thought a Black woman is before they felt comfortable or safe to befriend me. And that that's just how I perceived it. How did you go from being in front of the camera as well as behind the camera to writing this book, Be Extraordinary, Claiming a Life of Purpose, Passion, and Prosperity. Clearly, you were the catalyst for your own book. (laughs) Absolutely, Sandy. You know, writing the book was definitely a thing where I remember reading my journal, and I had kept a journal from the time I was about 13 or 14. And I remember reflecting on that journal, like my first two years in New York, working in news and just reading the words and like really being confused about at a different stages in my life, just about what is happening in my life, you know, whether those things were in- environmental, familial, or even like emotionally, like things I was going through. And I said to myself, what would I have told the 15-year-old Crystal, mm. being the Crystal that mm-hmm. I am today? You know, what would I have told the 20-year-old Crystal? And so the book was really birthed out of that because I knew that there was some girl or guy somewhere in the world, whether they were in college or they're going through their post-quarter life crisis, that really wanted to pursue their purpose and their passion and do it in a way that it yielded prosperity. And I'm not talking about financial prosperity, like that's great. Like we all, you know, we all love to have our coins, but, you know, really about being able to have enough in your life to have impact. And so for me in writing that book, I just wanted to it to be something that someone would read and really be inspired to actually pursue the thing that they knew they wanted to do as early as 15, right? I wanted to be that cheerleader or that counselor or that piece of advice to that person that wanted to do it and they just didn't know how because a lot of my journey was just figuring it out along the way. But to that end though, Crystal, you never wrote a book before. (laughs) You had this need or this desire 
to do this and you did it. And mm-hmm. so that also can't be dismissed. Writing a book is not the same thing as putting together a newscast or putting together questions for a guest who's going to make a five-minute appearance. Mm. This is true. You know, I think the thing is, it's like, for me, Sandy, it's always been about like, well, well, if I don't do it, right, then who will? You know, I think about the the people in the rec centers that basically raised me, right? If they didn't invest the time in me, then where would I be? Like, I would be a statistic. I mean, you think about it, the data in Baltimore, they did a study at John Hopkins, 96% of the people who are born in poverty in, in Baltimore die in poverty, 96%. And so we weren't like homeless or we we ate, you know, we had food, but it was a struggle. And I think about those people who were in those rec centers who invested their time and energy and teaching me arts and crafts or showing me how to, you know, cook or all of those things that made me to who I am today. And I just felt like one of the things that really prompted me to write the book. So when everything happened in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, mm, mm, and, and you can mm-hmm. see the date of the book was right after that. I remember just seeing all of these images of all of these beautiful Black children in the streets being depicted in a way that I knew it wasn't indicative of every young Black boy or girl in Baltimore. And I knew that there was a sense of hopelessness, a sense of dehumanization, a sense of not knowing what's going to be next in their lives that really was impacting their actions. And so I remember asking my senior um, editor at at Fox at the time, I said, hey, I want to do a special on Baltimore and I want to show every side of Baltimore, like not just the side that is impoverished, not just the side that, you know, I want to talk about a lot of the systemic issues that exist, but also the people who are having impact. And so they approved the special. And I remember I took the bus and I never would take the bus down to Baltimore. I would usually take the Amtrak. But this time I took the bus down because I wanted to see all of these areas that have been painted through our, you know, national landscape and news of just like treacherous and horrific, like places mm-hmm. that I used to hang. Sure. And so, you know, so I remember being on the bus and I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't like totally burnt down. This isn't like totally destroyed. People aren't burning up their own communities in, in the midst of this. Right. And so that experience prompted me to really write the book because I was like, listen, there are young people who are growing up in, in, in communities where there are rows and rows of boarded up houses, like literally, right? And their house could be right in the middle of a whole broken down community and they want to be something and they just don't know how. And so that experience really prompted me to write the book and do media locally in Baltimore around the book to really encourage them to say, even if you come from this, you don't have to be this. And this is the way that you can do it. And here's a story as, as an example. So it was just like, it's bigger than me. I don't know if you're familiar with the artist Joyce Scott. I had the real honor and pleasure of interviewing her and her work has been shown in museums and galleries all over. And she's a Baltimore native and Mm. the same thing. I'm not leaving. This is who birthed me. This is where, how I got to be where I got to be. And I'm not Mm -hmm. dumping Baltimore. This is who I am. And while that's empowering for her, it's also empowering for the people who are exposed to her. Look at this incredible talent and relish that. Mm -hmm. I think that that's the beauty of having like life experiences as well. Right. I mean, I could have easily just gone on and said, you know, I'm done with Baltimore. I'm pursuing my career. But home is what made me. This place made me. And I had so many amazing experiences in Baltimore, good, bad and indifferent. And I believe that all of those things make me this human that really 
cares about how our, our communities are depicted and really even just shining a light on the good because there's good everywhere. And I think we see enough of that. Having worked in network news, I, you know, was what is mm-hmm. it, death before destruction? And then just reporting on that kind of stuff all day and creating the stories around that. I just knew that there was a message that was missing. And so my journey, I just really don't feel it was about me. I, I was sharing that with my dad today. We were on the phone and I was like, you know, all that I'm, all that I'm doing and all that I've done, it's like, I just know it's bigger than me and I'm okay with having to go through the trenches. So when someone else doesn't have to. <laughs> Well, you've also been recognized for the work that you've done and for the passion that you have. As I said, this NAACP Freedom Fighter Award and the UN Social Media Ambassador. Tell us how some of these came to be. Mm, well, the UN Ambassador was funny. Um, I was on the train. I was catching the Amtrak to Maryland. Um, I was doing a speaking engagement. I do think it was at my home church where my, my grandparents were married. And I'm on the train and I have like note cards and I'm writing and I'm sitting next to this woman. And and when I tell you, Sandy, I really didn't want to be bothered this day. Like, I just did not want to talk to anybody. Yeah, leave me alone. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah. leave me alone, lady. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to talk to you. And this woman, she starts this conversation and, you know, she's she's a, a white woman with a, with a British accent. And so she's like, oh, you know, are you studying? Are you in school? And I'm like, no. And I keep, I keep you know, I keep doing my note cards. Right, right. And she Giving one more answers. <laughs> right. And she keeps going with this conversation. And I just took a step back and I said, Crystal, just be open. And I started to con- communicate with this woman. And I was sharing with her my story and where I was going to speak. And she was like, oh, you know, I work for the United Nations Foundation and you just have such an amazing profile. She was like, you know, let's let's schedule a call when you get back from Baltimore. And so when I got back from Baltimore, I emailed her that next week. She was the, I think, the director of community engagement at the time. And we just started to build a rapport. And she's like, Crystal, you have such a presence. I want you to do something with our UN Women Foundation and host these conversations for us. And that's how that came about, right? So again, right place, right time, being open, you know, mm-hmm, all of these things, mm-hmm. doing the work, right? Um, and I think that's a big piece of it, Sandy. And I know you know this. You have to do the work if you want to get some type of recognition that is not just notable, but also scalable and sustainable, right? And so when you're on this journey of doing the work, like these opportunities will come to you if you're just being open to doing the work. And so that's how that came about. For the the actual award for community and journalism, that was because of the special that I did on Baltimore. The NAACP got word of it, saw that I was doing it on a platform where traditionally certain perspectives aren't seen and heard. Mm -hmm. And they really valued that. And so they saw a lot of the work that I had done in the community with young women with HIV and AIDS patients and things like that. And so they they gave me that award. So, you know, a lot of it was just going on this journey, Sandy. I don't even know. Like, people will find you and they're like, oh, this is what you're doing? Like, this is awesome. And so a lot of it came to me in that way as well. Does it surprise you how eclectic your career is? It's, it's really hard to label you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've struggled with that. I've struggled with that, Sandy. And it's true. I always can say this. As a child, I was very creative. Like I loved arts and crafts and I was like all over the place, but just very introverted in my own all over the place kind of way. And so I did dance class and I did arts and crafts and then I loved to write poetry. And so the fact that I have such a eclectic career, uh, no, I don't. It doesn't surprise me. I think what really surprises me the most is um, the fact that I'm not finished yet. (laughs) Well, of course not. (laughs) 
Like, I feel like I still have so much more work to do that, you know, in this season in my journey, I really want to have impact as it pertains to equity, less about equality, because I think you can't have equality without equity. And so I really want to be able to offer Black, the Black community specifically, ways to create wealth, ways to create their level of freedom in America, um, to take advantage of some of the opportunities that exist in our country and make the most of them to where, you know, they can actually change and break a lot of these cycles that exist within um, communities, underserved communities, I would say. Are you fighting for diversity? Well, I mean, I I do have a technology that I'm building um, that's all about giving diverse perspectives the the opportunity to be seen and heard in media. So that's a part of the commitment to like creating like algorithms that kind of counter biased, uh, (laughs) biased selection when it comes to guests on air. So inadvertently, yes, but I believe that diversity is everywhere, right? I believe that the inclusion and upward mobility is what's missing, right? You can walk into any organization and see people of color to see women, mm-hmm. to see people of different religious groups, but are mm-hmm. these people being positioned to, you know, have a upwardly mobile career? Are they being trained for managerial and senior senior leadership positions? And so for me, it's less about diversity because we can see it on the street, but it's like, I want to be the person that's bridging the gap, right? Like, are you talking to the person in your newsroom that looks different from you or that grow up in the same kind of community that you grew up in? Are you inviting them to the baby shower? <laughs> right? right? Are you really building bridges to where you're just getting to know someone different, someone who has a different perspective than you? And so that's my fight. My fight is to just break down the barriers and the bias that exist in us getting to know one another. And so it's less about the diversity piece for me and more about inclusion because diversity is a part of our culture like since its inception. How do you feel or what is the sense that you have as you stand here today in 2022 and look back at not so much where you've come, but what's impacted you and how you have made an impact? Mm. I think. Where I stand on it is, I think the best thing for me, honestly, Sandy's going to sound so lame, right, is like when I get the random DMs from all kinds of people, just Mm -hmm. different, Mm -hmm. you know, just different. I actually, one of of the most gratifying experiences that I had when I was at Fox, I I hosted a national podcast for them called Extraordinary, of course. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I was interviewing like all these amazing people. And so a gentleman who actually I went to high school with, he's two years younger than me. He's a two times New York Times bestseller. And he wrote a book called Living and Dying While Black in America, right? And, you know, I interviewed him on his book because one, he was in New York Times bestseller and deserved to be on a national podcast, but more importantly, because of his unique story. And so in his story, in the interview, he shared with me, uh, he said, you know, Crystal, I remember being uh, 10 years old and playing on the basketball courts in East Baltimore as a child, as a kid doing nothing wrong. And the police would come and they would basically strip search us and make us lay uh, face down on the concrete, and, you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he shared this story so eloquently. And, you know, we went on with the interview 
Um, and we were just talking about dehumanization and what that looks like and what people can't even imagine happens in certain communities to children. And a gentleman at one of our local stations in like the reddest part of, of, of Idaho called me up and he said, Crystal, I did not know. And I could hear like the empathy and the pain in his voice. And he was like, you know, please, I would love to have him on as a guest if you could share his information. I don't even remember who the host was, at his name, who called me. But I just remember that, that I could hear that through that conversation, his perspective of what being a young Black man in America looks like was totally shifted from what he probably previously believed when he said, I just did not know. And so for me, when I get those kinds of calls or those types of DMs about impact like that on a tangible ground level, where that man could then go into his community and now look at a young Black boy in a basketball court and look at him differently, right? Like that for me is powerful, right? Like that for me is impact, that's work. And so for me, it's kind of like, can I scale that or put like quantifiably what that what that means, like in, in dollars or anything like that? No, but it, as far as the impact that that has on like humanity and like our human experience together, for me, that's like where, where the real impact happens. So where do you think you want to go? I mean, obviously you're in a very good place now, as a lifestyle host and a podcast host and a journalist. And you've done, I mean, really, uh, writing your resume would be just such a freaking pain in the ass, you know? <laughs> but it has what, been. <laughs> uh, but, but talk about tomorrow. Mm. So tomorrow is being um, the, the the CEO and founder of a tech company that goes public and to be able to offer shares of that uh, to my employees that are of all races, all ethnicities, all genders, all religions, and them to be able to then take that equity that they have in that company and sow a good seed into their communities where they come from and then use their voices to have impact. Because at the end of the day, like I mentioned before, you know, we could have equality all day. But if we don't have equity, then we can't have the level of impact that's scalable and sustainable that we need. So like for me, that's it, right? Like doing an IPO, selling my company, um, empowering people financially to live their best legacy. And then, you know, probably like buying a private island like in La Cabarete, <laughs> Dominican Republic. <laughs> Having some babies, you know, like all that kind of stuff. That for me is like the dream. Honestly, Sandy, like I really want people to not have to worry about the things that I had to worry about. How you're going to pay for books? How are you going to pay back for college? If you want to go and study abroad for a year to be able to give someone some stock in a company that they can allow their children to go and do that or to start a business or even to learn how to run a business, right? You know, those kinds of things. That's what really matters and that's impact for me. So I believe that that's the end of the day for me. And then I just want to do mission work like around the world. I have a commitment to that. It started um, back in 2018. I went um, with the water mission as an ambassador for them over in Haiti. And we put water systems in communities that didn't even have running water. And so, you know, I think once I do my IPO, I'm going to go and just do mission work for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, it's what's so heartening. And one of the big takeaways from this conversation is how it's worked for you to be your own advocate. Mm. Well, you have to be. You know, Sandy. Well, you have to have the, the stuff to back it up, which you do, but to have the drive and the tenacity, all of which are positive attributes. You know, it's not being, you know, an angry black woman. You mm. got yourself on this path. You've done so much 
mountain climbing. Mm. You know, when you talk about be your own best advocate, I'll share a quick little story because I know we could probably talk all day, but... um, so I mentioned to you, I'm really tall. And so when I was little, right, my mom used to buy me stockings. I always loved wearing dresses and stuff. But these stockings were really short. They were too short because I had really long legs. You're talking about pantyhose? Girl. Pantyhose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you, yeah, you know, those little stockings, they had like the hearts and stuff on them. They were really thick, <laughs> you know, that little girls used to wear. Mm-hmm. And so what I would do was I would rip the crotch to make them more comfortable, mm-hmm. right? So they would mm-hmm. fit me. And I remember my mom yelling at me time and time again, what are you doing to your stockings? Like, is somebody touching you or, you know, like why your your stockings ripped at the crotch? And I didn't know how to articulate that my stockings were too short because I was a little girl. And I remember the day when she realized that I was ripping the crotch of my stockings because they were too short. And she, she was about to beat me for that, right? And she said, oh my God, why didn't you say anything? And I remember my mom has like funny color, like green color eyes and her eyes like turn colors. And she like had her eyes teared up a little bit. She's like, don't ever, ever let anybody, you know, um, make you think that you can't tell them what's wrong and what's going on. And that was a lesson I learned when I was about five years old. Wow. I was a very little girl. Mm-hmm. And that just has gone throughout my life, you know, and I do it in a way that, inspires other people to think about how they perceive the world and their own actions, right? And one of my favorite quotes is is by James Baldwin. He says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And to me, that is one of the most powerful quotes in the world. And we all have our own way that we're going to face the challenges in humanity or in society or even in America or even in our communities, right? Or even in our schools. But know that if you don't ever say anything, if you if you are never your own best, best advocate, you cannot create any change, not only in the world, but within yourself, within your own reality, right? And so... For me, that's what it's about. But I learned that very early on when I was a little girl about just knowing how to stand up for myself and be able to articulate what I'm experiencing and what feels uncomfortable and then creating a solution for it. And in the meantime, like ripping my crotch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, forgive me for stating the obvious here, but why the hell don't you run for office? (laughs) (laughs) I think that there is a lane for everybody, Sandy. And, you know... I want to just do the work. Like, I don't want it to be attached to any agenda. I don't want it to be attached to any box that people check off. I don't want it to be attached to any color, red or blue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to just do the work in a way that I can see the impact without having to either answer to anybody for that. You know, I just answer to my higher power and I'm good with that. And plus I got too many skeletons in my closet. Sandy, I can't be running <laughs> Well, those secrets would be safe with me. You know, honestly, Crystal, that's a perfect way to end. You are a very empowering, contagious advocate. You should be cloned. Well, thank you, Sandy. It's an honor coming from you. I I, I appreciate you. I value the work that you're doing and highlighting creative women. It's so critical that our voices be seen and heard. And I just commend you and thank you for the opportunity to be here. And, you know, I just want to encourage you to keep doing what you do because you're amazing as well. Well, that's that's really lovely to hear. It really is a mutual admiration society. So thank you again, Crystal. It was nothing short of terrific getting to meet you and hearing all about your passion and your life. It's wonderful. Thank you, Sandy. I appreciate you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. 